we have the privilege to hear from Professor David Rutterman on three early rabbis' views on God, nature, and medicine. You may not know it, but our own Rita Frazier's son, Ira Frazier, was Professor Ruderman's student in Hebrew High School at the Fort Lee Jewish Center in New Jersey, and he sends you his regards. He lives in San Diego today, and one of the joys of teaching is to be remembered by one student these many years later. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ruderman. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for that kind of introduction and for your interesting drasha. Um, all right, so you hear me. I'm not too loud. I, I'm, I haven't started yet, so I, I do have a loud, beaming voice um, when I get excited. I'm not excited right now. So, uh, <laughs> so if it gets too loud, tell me what to do, or I'll push it away or something. But um, I, I, I'm very conscious that I don't, I don't want to blast in your face. I mean, maybe it's, you like it that way, but particularly people in the back there. But I. I, I'm not going to do it. All right, so as you know, I, I'm here um, uh, for the month of uh, January uh, with my wife, um, uh, visiting family that we have here, and, uh, and giving uh, in, in my free time 21 lectures. Uh, you know, professors don't work that hard, so this is quite a, a, you know, a challenge. But uh, so far, you got me at the beginning, so I'm, this is only the fourth lecture, so I'm sort of holding up. Um, what I've done, basically, uh, I've been teaching uh, Jewish history for about 45 years. Um, I studied in Israel at the Hebrew University. Uh, I'm also a rabbi. Uh, and um, uh, I, uh, I teach now at the University of Pennsylvania, um, where I have some incredible students. Uh, and before that, uh, at Yale, and before that, the University of Maryland, I guess before that, at Fort Lee, uh, high school, I, you know, that, those are really modest beginnings. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine he remembered me and liked me because that was such a difficult place to teach. But uh, in any case, uh, uh, it's nice to be remembered. Uh, I did meet uh, at the last lecture, I get, I get, uh, someone drove down from Los Angeles who had been my student at the University of Maryland. So that's the beautiful thing about being a teacher in terms of interacting with uh, people who, uh, you know, go in and out of your life. But somehow, you leave an impact on them, and they sometimes, uh, quite often, leave an impact on you. Um, I have many interests. I'm an early modern Jewish historian who works primarily on the period from the expulsion of Spain to the Enlightenment, the Haskalah. Uh, but I teach all of Jewish history. Uh, I've had the pleasure of having 18 doctoral students who are teaching at universities all over the country. Um, and uh, they're my children as well. Uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, it, it's been a delight in, in the world that I uh, inhabit. Um, and I also feel that my own career has sort of paralleled um, uh, the growth of Jewish studies in this country and its impact on the larger community. All right, so I'm not going to talk about myself. Uh, well, you know, I guess I'm good at that. If my wife was here, she'd tell me to, to shut up. Um, but I, I want to go on and talk about our topic. But let me, let me explain what, what I'm doing here and why I chose this topic. Um, I, I told this story, this is actually a cluster of three lectures, and I assume most of you, I see a few of you were at the, at the previous lecture, uh, but this was in the conservative synagogue in Tustin, where I gave the first lecture. And this is the second one, so I'm, I'm not going to, for those of you that were not there, 
I'm going to provide you with some kind of, uh, of introduction, which then leads into this one. I personally uh, prefer this one, and you'll tell me at the end whether it is or not, uh, over, over the other one. The other one was very broad, and I dealt with some very broad ideas. This is much more focused, and, and also it gives me an opportunity to teach some texts. And as you see, and, and forgive my primitive handouts, um, these are my own translations. So that's why they look so uh, bad. Um, and I have one that I haven't translated at all. Uh, but, so I'm going to try to do that on, on the spot. And I have a, a few Hebrew, Hebrew speakers here who can correct me if I make a mistake. But just a very short paragraph I'm going to read with you. But I want to try to reconstruct three lives of rabbis. So why do I get into this topic? Uh, I'm not a scientist. I, I'm not a doctor. Are there any doctors in the house in case I don't f I feel ill? Yeah, oh, we have. Uh, okay. Um, um, uh, uh, James Gitlin. It's going to take a while, uh, James. It's only been here four times already. But uh, James Gitlin is a, is, is, a, uh, is a doctor, so I feel better already. Um, <laughs> I'm not a doctor, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a scientist, uh, but when I was teaching at the University of Maryland, I was looking for a haven to try to uh, hang out. And uh, if you know the Washington area, I mean, I used to live in Rockville, Maryland, and I had to take the Beltway in order to get to uh, the University of Maryland, which was a big state university. Um, <clears throat> and halfway uh, in Bethesda was a place called uh, NIH, the National Institute for Health. Um, and I found the library there, and I said, nobody's going to know me there. They're all studying medicine. What do I say? I just can see it, bring my own Jewish text, and work. Um, but then I discovered across the hall was this enormous library of the history of medicine. And when I was taking a break, I would walk over there and just take a look, and out came all of these Hebrew books, Maimonides, and, and all kinds of other Hebrew texts. It was unbelievable what was there, and no one was reading it, no one at all. So I had my own private library of Judaica that dealt with medicine and science. So I became involved, um, and I discovered something which I, and I made this point in, in my previous lecture, and I want to make it again, that medicine in particular, uh, science in general, but medicine in particular, was a gateway for Jews into the larger world during the medieval period, as, and particularly in the period we're going to speak about tonight, which is the early modern period, the period of the Renaissance, of the Reformation, of the Counter-Reformation, in other words, the 16th and the 17th century. This was an age in which Jews were able to enter the larger cultural space of the non-Jewish world through medicine. And here I'm speaking very specifically about one particular moment. In other words, I want to talk about this period in general by way of introduction. But what is particularly important here is that for the first time in the end of the 16th century, a nominally Catholic university said it's okay for Jews to attend the university. This was the beginning of formal entrance of the Jew into the university. Yes, some Jews in the Middle Ages had hung around universities and more or less were informally accepted. But Padua, the University of Padua, Padua is a beautiful university town about 10 kilometers from Venice. So if you go to Venice, you will go to Padua, which is on the main line in the area of Venice called the Veneto. Uh, if you're interested in Venice, by the way, I'm giving another lecture on Venice. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it all. I have a whole, another cluster on Jewish cities, Prague, Venice, Amsterdam, and so on. But tonight, I'm speaking about Padua. So Padua was the first university to open its doors to Jews. 
And the Paduan experience was indeed a remarkable experience because over the course of some 150 years, hundreds of Jews attended the university. And they came from all over the place. A medieval or an early modern university basically had what are called nations. In other words, the, uh, the, the, the students hung out with, with their own ethnic uh, kind. So you had the German nation and the Polish nation uh, and, and the Spanish nation uh, at the university. So what, where were Jews? The Jews hung out two blocks away in the synagogue of Padua. And it's still there, a 16th century structure. I remember spending uh, a Shabbat with the rabbi of Padua when I was working in the university archive at the time. Um, it was an extraordinary experience. In other words, discovering for the first time medical education. But also it, it, at Padua, remember Padua wasn't just a university. Um, it was the university to study medicine in the 16th and 17th century. Vesalius, Galileo, I mean, these were all graduates of the University of Padua. Padua was number one uh, in this time frame. So by the time the Jews get there a little bit late, nevertheless, they are entering a remarkable university for humanistic uh, medicine. That is, they study Latin and they read uh, the classical texts. Um, and then they move on from humanism and philosophy into medicine. Uh, it, it is a remarkable process by which, now just think of the Jews having to deal with the, the problems of, of living in a, in a universe that was clearly not kosher. Uh, they escaped to the synagogue and there they ate their kosher meals. They learned their Latin from former Jewish graduates who taught them in a kind of preparatory school in Padua before they could enter the university. And then when they entered the university, um, they had to encounter all kinds of hostilities and all kinds of, of fears. One of the most uh, 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 recounted uh, events of Padua uh, was, if you've ever been to this city, it has a remarkable amphitheater where they did, uh, what do you call it? Um, Dissections. Dissections, right. Um, it, it is still there, the, the original one. I mean, I stood it and I was shaking, it was so powerful. Um, and, uh, but, but clearly the Jews had a problem. Uh, the medical students were always looking for cadavers. They were looking for bodies. And as you know, Jews bury very quickly. So you want to get the best kind of specimen, go after a Jewish uh, body that's just been buried. And they were. So, I mean, there was enormous fear uh, on the part of the Jewish community uh, that medical school, uh, students would invade uh, the, the cemetery and so on. Only one of the many obstacles of being a Jew at the University of Padua. Nevertheless, what we're speaking about are a community of physicians who were intermediaries who were cultural intermediaries between the non-Jewish world and the Jewish world, between high culture and low culture. You know, a physician takes care of all kinds of people, whether they are uh, educated or wealthy or whether they're poor and, and uneducated. Um, and in the case of these Jewish doctors, many of them ministered to Christian patients, particularly in Italy where they were welcomed, uh, and uh, they traveled all over uh, the diaspora. We even have students at Padua that came from Spain and Portugal who were conversos, Miranos, who had returned to Judaism, or some of them had not returned to Judaism. And after their training, they also went all over the place, to places like uh, Amsterdam uh, and Hamburg, uh, and to places, uh, and even as far as Eastern Europe. So what we're speaking about is a kind of medical fraternity, confraternity that emerges within the context of the early modern period. 
scientists who begin, now we're also speaking, remember, this is the early modern period. What are, the early modern period is a period of the expansion of the world, the discovery of America. Uh, but it is also the scientific revolution. It is, I mentioned Galileo in passing. Um, there is a very famous uh, Jew who studied at Padua named Yosef del Medigo, Yashar Mikandia, as he is called. He refers in his writing, Rabbi Galileo. Isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. Rabbi Galileo, all right? Uh, we, we have many cases of Jews actually interacting with uh, the larger context. But what we're speaking about, therefore, is not only an advanced medical school. We're speaking about a larger culture in which science emerges. Now, in my previous lecture, which I'm not going to go over, but nevertheless, I just want to give you the bridge so that we can now jump into our material. We have um, uh, the larger subject of why Jews enter medicine. And what I tried to do was to talk about a whole series of attitudes towards uh, the notion of Jews being involved with science and medicine. I, I won't go through them, but I tried to underscore the fact that if one looks at the rabbinic material, in other words, prior to the period that I'm going to speak about this evening, what is clear are three things. And forgive me for those of you that were here if I repeat just a couple of minutes. Number one, uh, a fascination and an appreciation of nature as a resource of God. In other words, Hashemayim Mesaprim Kavodeo, the heavens declare the majesty of God. Or may Bisari Echeze Eloha, another expression in the Bible. When I look at my, my own body, I see God. In other words, divinity, the signs of, of God are to be found in the natural world. That is an expression that, that, uh, that, uh, that repeats itself over and over again in the Tanakh, but is also found in rabbinic literature, with some exceptions, but primarily it is there. The second thing that Jews do in the rabbinic period is that they, um, they try to improve upon nature. In other words, that's part of their, what I would call their covenantal responsibility. God gave us the natural world. It is not always, it is not always ideal. What I'm referring to, of course, is the physician. The notion of advocating the fact that when someone is ill, one goes to a doctor. And the doctor improves upon a bad situation. So medicine is already part and parcel of Jewish culture in the ancient period, in the rabbinic period. Many rabbis were doctors. And in the period that we're going to be talking about right now, that is the case. Rabbi, doctor. You know, there's a need among my colleagues. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, rabbis have to be, it's not enough to have a rabbinic degree, you know. Uh, you got to be a, doc, a doctor as well. Um, my father was also a rabbi, told me, you know, your highest degree will be a rabbi, your PhD is just secondary, but the, the rabbinic degree is the highest degree. Be that as it may, uh, the Italian Jews especially combine the two together, as you will hear, uh, and I, I'm going to really move quickly because I want to get into those three lives, which I think are so fascinating. Um, the third thing that I said uh, about this early period, though, was that, they, that Jews not only uh, want to improve upon nature, they want to replicate it. And here I argued for a very strong feeling of magic, of magical activity within Judaism. Not only making a golem, you know what a golem is, a kind of artificial man, but I'm, I'm speaking about the fact that there is a long tradition of magical activity within Judaism, of trying to harness the forces of nature, one might call it a kind of pre-scientific interest in nature, whatever you want to call it. Magic and nature are not so different. They're obviously different, but they're, they're also connected in some respects. Um, and clearly, the magical activities of the Jews 
are something that never seems to go away. It is very much a part of the ancient and the medieval world. In the latter part of that lecture that I gave on Shabbat, I talked about a group of medieval Jewish thinkers, Maimonides, Halevi, and so on. I did it very quickly, as quickly as I'm doing it now, maybe a little slower than that, but not much more. And I talked about various attitudes towards the natural world. But now I want to pick up in the period that is my own period, and it's also the period of the scientific revolution. What I want to do is give you three case studies. Well, let me also say another word about the early modern period before I jump into them. Just one more minute. Um, I wrote a book called Early Modern Jewry and New Cultural History, which is a kind of overview, and, and some of you have the book, um, which is a kind of overview of this entire period. I talk about five characteristics of this period. And I'll mention them now. I'm not going to go into them, but I want to sort of frame the, the larger context in which this period emerges. So you appreciate. We talked about science already, but I want to say a few other things first. Number one, mobility. This is a period of great movement. Jews on the move. Jews are moving because of expulsion. They were expelled from Spain. They were expelled from Portugal. Um, they move eastward into Eastern Europe. They move to the Ottoman Empire. It is a period of great disruption in Jewish life and new communities. And also, because of this movement, a, a kind of social mixing. Jews are discovering in the early modern period other Jews. Take, for example, the ghetto of Venice, since we're right near Padua. Uh, some of you have been to Venice before. You'll recall there are more than one synagogue. Now, that's, of course, you know, the old Jewish joke. You know, there are, there are three synagogues for two Jews. You know, we have to always say that we're Shabbos and the other one, whether we're not where we are or not. Uh, but whatever the case may be, as you see, there are many adot, uh, there, uh, there are many communities, sub-communities within the larger community because Ashkenazic Jews had come to Italy, because uh, Sephardic Jews had come to Italy, uh, because Italian Jews had been living there who, who, who read out of the prayer book called Minhag Romi, a, an Italian uh, kind of nusach of, of, of doing uh, liturgy. Um, and these sub-communities were meeting each other, uh, Sephardic Jews meeting Ashkenazic Jews and so on. The second characteristic besides mobility is a kind of a social cohesion, or the, this is the period of the great Jewish communities. Unlike the modern period where the community starts to fall apart, in this period, the states support these communities. So we have remarkable, we have the ghetto in Italy, which I will speak about in another lecture. Um, we have the Jewish communities of Amsterdam and Hamburg and so on, the Sephardic Jewish communities, the Western Sephardic diaspora. We have an enormous community emerging in the Ottoman Empire. And of course, the greatest sub-community of Jews is called the Vad Arbat Sothi Council of Four Lands, this remarkable super key law, the super community in Eastern Europe. So the community is also a remarkable feature of this period. The third characteristic of this period, which is relevant to our topic this evening, is knowledge explosion. What I mean by that is primarily the printing press, the discovery of a new invention. Those of us who live through the world of the computer and the iPad and all of that uh, and, and, and Facebook and tweets, uh, a president who tweets, uh, sorry, no politics, um, um, it, it is a new world, right? It is a new world of communication. But recall that in the 16th century, the printing press or the 15th century was a period of extraordinary transformation because of an invention known as the printing press. And Jews took it quite seriously. The Hebrew press was a remarkable feature of this period. Remember Venice itself, only 10 kilometers from Padua, 
was the heart of Jewish printing. The first Jewish Talmud, the first Talmud, the first Mikraot Gedolot, the first rabbinic Bible, all came out of this area. And the Jews entered the university. So this is indeed knowledge explosion in every respect. The other two characteristics are less relevant to, uh, to discussing this evening. Uh, the fourth is the crisis of identity, uh, the crisis of, of tradition, Shabtai uh, Tzvi, uh, the Messiah, and so on. I'm also lecturing on that, believe it or not. Um, and finally, uh, uh, mingled identities, or uh, here I'm speaking about conversos, Muranos. I'm speaking about uh, the followers of Shabtai Tzvi. I'm speaking about uh, the, the mishmash of identities that emerge within the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, very much precursors of the world that we live in, of, uh, of our mingled identities, of our braided identities in which we are striving. So the early modern period for me is a very dynamic universe, uh, lots of change, lots of, of dynamism, uh, uh, lots of things going on that are extremely important in understanding our own modern world as well. Now let me talk about these three guys. Uh, and they are indeed very interesting, and I want to refer to their text. How much of the text we're going to read, I don't know, but I want to just give you an idea. Uh, so I started about 10, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I have Rabbi 45 minutes and then 15 minutes for questions, but does that count uh, when you started or when I started? When you started. All right, all right, so it's 10 after, I just want to make sure, okay. So that's perfect, having that clock up there so I can, I can see. So I've gone 20 minutes already, I think. Um, so, uh, so let me go on. So the, I want to introduce you to three characters that lived in Italy. Uh, two are Italian Jews. One is an Ashkenazic Jew. Uh, all of them uh, were very serious scholars of Judaism, and they all wrote in Hebrew. Um, let me tell you about their biographies, and then let me show you. Uh, so the question that I'm raising with all three, how does science, medicine, this new encounter with the natural world, this intense exposure to new inventions, to uh, new discoveries of the world, how did this affect Jewish consciousness and Jewish identity and Jewish spirituality? That's really my, my larger question. In other words, I'm illustrating, I could talk about it in any period, but this period is so rich. Uh, and if you're interested, I, I wrote a whole book called Jewish Thought and Scientific Discovery in Early Modern Europe, which, where you can study these, these guys in, in great detail. Um, but here, you don't need detail. I just want to give you a kind of profile and to illustrate how interesting and how exciting these figures are when one looks at this remarkable transformative world and their participation in it. Azaria Figo is the first individual I want to speak about tonight. He lived from 1579 to 1647. He was a rabbi in the city of Pisa and in Venice. So nearby, not in Padua, but very nearby. We do not know if he graduated medical school, but my guess is that he does have a medical degree because there are so much references to medicine in all of his writings. He was, is not uh, 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 very well known today, but in his time, he was quite well known. He wrote a book called Bina Le'itim, which is a book of sermons. Sermons, all right? I mean, that whole genre of rabbis writing their sermons and publishing them and so on, either in the bulletin or maybe putting it under, you know, in a hardcover and so on. Binala Itim, we have, was published in Venice in 1648. What is interesting is that many rabbis in this period wrote their sermonic uh, 
volumes. But Binale team had some uh, 60 editions. Uh, it was the most popular group of sermons, or at least one of the most popular. I can't, I can't quantify it exactly. But it, it is a popular. I mean, take, for example, the other rabbi that lived in this period who is much more well-known. His name is Leon Modena. In fact, uh, he might have been a teacher of Azaria Figo. Leon Modena wrote a book of sermons called Midbar Yehuda. There's only one edition. So no one read Leon Modena, but everyone read Azaria Figo. Um, Israel Batan, the professor of homiletics at the Hebrew Union College, many years ago wrote a book on Jewish preaching. Preaching is a, it's a wonderful field. Um, and indeed, he introduces us to Azaria Figo, who was one of his favorite darshanim, one of, the, one of the great speakers. So here, what I'm looking at are sermons, okay? I'm going to discover nature and science in a sermon. Um, I, well, actually, I exaggerated. 50 editions. So what did I say? 60? All right. So we don't know very much about Figo's own personal life, but we do know a great deal about this was the age of sermons. Jews, clearly under the influence of the Catholic world, where sermons were given by the local clergy, started to give sermons in their own synagogues. The, the debate among historians, what language they gave the sermons in? Probably Italian. They published them in Hebrew, because that's you know, the cool thing to do. You're a scholar, you publish them in Hebrew. So that, therefore, the book itself is not exactly equivalent to the oral presentation. But nevertheless, uh, there obviously has to be a relationship between the two. We know, for example, from Leon Modena, that he gave sermons regularly in the ghetto of Venice. And he tells us that he spoke beautiful Italian because a lot of Christians came to hear him. Uh, so therefore, uh, despite the, any kind of oppressive feeling living within the, the counter-reformation, the Catholic reform period at the end of the 16th and the 17th century, nevertheless, Jews and Christians intermingled within the ghetto itself. And perhaps that was the same case for Figo. Now, take a look at the sermon, the first text. I don't know, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to introduce it to you, and then I want to have you uh, at least well enough. You see the part that I marked. So it says, Azaria Figo, selections from Sermon for Rosh Hashanah. So let me uh, set the setting, okay? And, and think of this as, an, as, as a problem. So it's Rosh Hashanah, and Rosh Hashanah falls on Shabbat. So what can't we do? can't blow the shofar, okay? So for some people, that's a crisis, right? Uh, Reformed Jews solve it by blowing the shofar. Uh, but, uh, you know, most conservative shuls, I assume, don't blow the shofar on Shabbat. The, certainly, Figo's congregation didn't blow the shofar on Shabbat. So what does he want to do here? So let me just read a few lines. I, again, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I, but I, I want to give you a taste of a text, and I, that's what I love to do. I like to teach texts. So forgive the lousy English because this is my own quick translation. There's a beautiful Hebrew version of this text, uh, which I have not given you. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, let's try to read the English. Uh, the human being was given intelligence by God, the source of wisdom and the master of repentance. Do all of you have it? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, his name is blessed, and he influenced him with great strength and with such a mighty hand until he filled his heart on numerous occasions with the capacity to make artificial inventions analogous to the actions of nature. Because of the weakness of matter or because of the deficiency of its preparation or the like, 
Man tries to correct and to replace it by some discovery or invention drawn from his intelligence to the point where he will not notice what is lacking in nature. We have indeed noticed weak-eyed persons who out of a deficiency of the matter of their eyes were unable to see at a distance or even close up and they were very nearsighted. Yet human intelligence was capable of creating eyeglasses placed on the bridge of the nose which aid and assist in magnifying the strength of vision for each person depending on what he lacks, either a little or a lot, similarly in the case of the eyeglass with a hollow reed. And here he's quoting from the Talmud Eruvim 43b where supposedly Rabban Gamliel discovered the telescope. Um, a nice Jewish fiction, but nevertheless, uh, it, it's, it's appropriate. Um, whereby, so he looks. Now, what's going on here? What I learned when I went to rabbinical school, I don't know uh, to what degree uh, you had a homiletics course in rabbinical school, but I had a homiletics course given by, actually, it was a non-Jewish guy. He, he taught us homiletics, and he was a, really a pain in the neck. Because as you see, I don't like to speak, uh, uh, read anything. I like to just speak off the cuff. And he made me write out these silly sermons and so on. But the first thing he said is, your first line is critical. You have to engage your, your community, right? You, 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 have to, you have to touch their context. If you don't refer, you can go to the most esoteric Jewish text, but you have to start out wh where they are and bring them along to your Jewish text, correct? So where are they by starting out this way? He's speaking about a common world where uh, nature is imperfect, and there's a need to correct nature. And the best example he can give uh, is eyeglasses or telescopes, right? We are imperfect. We don't, I don't see a damn thing now. I can't hardly see you, but when I put this on, I see perfectly, right? So here uh, is something that I, what, how I've improved upon nature, okay? Nature is not perfect, and I need to perfect it. So, so where are we going with all this? All right, now I want to skip to page, the next page. Number two, where it says two. Um, he actually refers in the previous paragraph, which I'm going to skip, uh, to um, uh, correcting uh, broken legs and all kinds of other artificial limbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of this by way of, of, of talking about something that is out there in the world. Uh, uh, thus we have seen from uh, this the capacity of a craft to correct a natural deficiency regarding the sense of sight. Okay, so that's where we're picking it up. Number two on the next page. One can draw analogies to other deficiencies. Oh, here it is, lameness and broken legs and the like. Not only such cases, but even that which is lacking from one's intelligence. One can correct it as in the case of the enhancement of memory. One can make an effort to remember things as it is known from the invention of spatial memory or memory palaces. Uh, and of course, he refers to Joseph and, and our, our uh, you know, almost uh, in the, near our parsha from, from the Shabbat. Um, um, memory palaces, what's that all about? In the Renaissance period, indeed, there are treatises written about enhancing memory. This was before the drug age of, you know, the way, you know, I, I, this is very relevant to me given my age. Uh, you know, how do we remember? I mean, how can I be an historian and forget? I mean, that's about the worst thing in the world. So uh, memory palaces is a kind of palace where you create in your own mind a, a house with all kinds of rooms, and you take all of the ideas that you need to remember and you put them, so you have one idea in the bathroom, one in the first bedroom, one in the second bedroom, and so on. And then, of course, you recall, aha, second bedroom. So then you pull out the idea and so on. 
But enhancement of memory is quite relevant. Uh, uh, Leon Modena actually wrote a treatise on zikaron, on remembering, in which he gives you techniques how to remember, right? I mean, we, we need that more than ever uh, today. So we are talking about uh, two now, go to three. It follows that if by natural means related to material things, a person tries to correct these deficiencies by substitutions and by exchanging one thing for another, what might he do regarding spiritual things? And with matters relating to the perfection of his soul dependent on the fulfillment of divine commandments. In the latter case, he's obliged to, in any case, to make signs and inventions in order not to forget them, as in the case of tzitzis, tzitzit. Okay? Now tzitzit becomes a memory device, right? Zahartem, you look at the tzitzit, and what do you remember? The mitzvot, right? So, so, indeed, tzitzit is a... So, we have, within our own tradition, the idea of creating forms of artificial memory, okay? In order to remember who we are, where we came from, Yitziat Mitzrayim, and so on and so forth. The creation of the world. Um, number four. God gave our hearts something to replace. So, where are we going with all of this? What I want you to do, dear community, is I want you to remember the sound of the shofar. In other words, through your artificial memory systems, all right? Notice, uh, God gave our hearts something to replace the sounds of the shofar on this holy day of Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah, where the sound cannot be heard. But the commandment was not completely abolished since the memory evoked by the biblical verses that speak about the shofar are sufficient to cause an impression of replacement exemplifying the commandment of the sounding itself. So if you read the verses, you will hear the shofar. And thus you will fulfill the commandment even though it is Shabbat. All right? Cute? You like that? I think he would have passed the homiletics course. Um, but in any case, what I'm trying to illustrate with this wonderful little text, and there are many other sermons like this, but I'm, I'm not going to, and I, I actually gave you some more pages. Um, what, what, what I'm trying to say is that this is not a scientific text. It is a sermon. It is given to a community of people from all kinds of uh, educational backgrounds and, and experiences. But the idea of evoking something from the natural world and thus using it to illustrate a point about remembering the sounds of the shofar, even on Shabbat, uh, is something that sort of connects that larger world of nature and science, uh, which is part of the culture of that day uh, with Judaism. All right, so that's my first example. My second example, and I want to go, uh, so let me see, I started at 10 after, so that would give me till I got 15 minutes. Okay. Um, th this example, uh, I actually just taught a course called God and Nature with a group of graduate students at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, actually, there, there were two graduate students and two undergraduates. And all of them, uh, I have a, I, I'm really blessed that I'm, I, I'm a reform rabbi that teaches almost all Orthodox Jews. I'm a shaliach to, uh, to Orthodox Jews. And these kids read Hebrew unbelievable. Uh, so we read through a whole semester of Hebrew texts like this. And this text in particular, now take a look at this. You can't, you know, most of you can't read it, but I want to look at the title page. This is a very famous text. There are also 25 editions of this text, easily. You have some more copies up there. If oh, wants to okay. Uh, yeah, well, I have the Hebrew. I'm not going to read it. I just wanted to show you what the title page looks like. But the title page is called Masay Tuvia. The person who I'll introduce to you now is Tobias Cohn, or Tuvia HaKohen. Um, 
And um, oh, oh, so I see you don't you don't have the you don't have anything that's that's Hebrew. Okay, so this is the title page. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have this text in English, so I'm going to help with David. Uh, I'm going to read a little paragraph, uh, and I'm going to translate it right on the spot. But let me tell you about this guy because this is an amazing story. He was born in 1652, and he died in 1729. In the city of Metz, he was born, grew up in the home of a physician and rabbi who had fled Poland during the Chmelnitsky pogroms of 1648. This was a period of great persecution in Eastern Europe. He studied in the yeshiva of Krakow before entering the medical school of the University of Frankfurt in Oder, which is in Eastern Germany, in 1678, under a special arrangement. Jews had not been allowed in the university, but through his connections, he uh, remained there for a year with a friend named Gabriel Felix. However, uh, it did not go well, and he was forced to leave, so he went south to the more tolerant surroundings of the University of Padua. There, he and Gabriel received the support from a group of Jewish doctors, one in particular named so Solomon Corneliano, a very famous Jewish doctor in the period, and they matriculated from the University of Padua uh, with a degree of philosophy and medicine in 1683. So here is a real graduate of the University of Padua. Upon graduation, Tobias pursued a distinguished medical career. He became the chief physician of the vizier of the Ottoman Empire, uh, and he finally settled in Jerusalem where he died. Um, a number of years ago, uh, I hear from my sister who lives in Jerusalem, and she says, um, I went to a, a musical uh, about Tobias Cohn, uh, and they were in the librato. They were quoting the author who had written on Tuvia Cohen, and it said David Ruderman, my brother. And I couldn't believe that. What were you doing in a musical? I mean, but can you believe the Israelis made a musical out of this guy? Uh, anyway, I, I, I can just imagine it. I never saw it, but in any case, so what? So he wrote a work, which was published in Venice. Uh, in 1708 called Masse Tuvia. It is a medical textbook, a textbook which covers, it begins with God and theology and the heavens, but it gets to Jewish diseases and it deals with, uh, with uh, every aspect of medicine. It's a kind of Dr. Spock of its day, all right? So we have a whole bunch of these medical textbooks that appeared. Um, there's so much to talk about. I spent almost a month and a half with my students reading this text, so obviously there's a lot to talk about here. But what I want to say just very simply is that Tuvia absorbed an enormous amount from his education. What is interesting about this text, he speaks in rabbinic terms. He says, there are the old rabbis, the old doctors called the Rishonim, and then there are the later doctors who are in my own day called the Achronim. And here he says, he starts with the Rishonim, so he tells us about you know, Aristotle and Galen and all of these people. And then he moves in to list a whole group of texts that were written uh, in, the, in the 17th and 18th century. I mean, it's almost up to date. And the way I sort of reconstructed this was I finally got into uh, the lecture notes of his teachers at Padua. And I saw they worked the same way. They begin with a classical text, and then they move and they correct the classical text. In other words, they're studying like the rabbi study. You start with a, a cortex and you go right through, uh, you know, right up through the sugya. So they were doing the same thing. And therefore, I was able to sort of reconstruct how he built this whole remarkable encyclopedia of medicine. 
which, by the way, was sold and republished over and over again uh, and was in many uh, homes of Jews during this period of time. Now, given the time frame, I'm gonna, what I have here is the introduction to this text. Uh, and you have it, uh, David, it's, it's hey. Uh, I'm just going to read a few lines, but I just want to show you the connection between Jewish identity and medicine. And it's a very powerful introduction. I wish I had the time to read the whole thing, but I, I, I want to give you a taste. And I know most of you don't know Hebrew, but just listen to the words. It's still magic. It just, you, should, you should be at least uh, enticed into thinking about studying some Hebrew. Um, Got to make this into a Hebrew lesson as well. All right, so um, here I'm picking up in the second paragraph, uh, David. Um, uh, Rabbi, do you have the text? You want it? Rishit Chochma is the one. Uh, no, no, wait, what are you reading? It's, it's on hay. It's, it's, it's daf hay. Haktamata yeah. mechaber. Right. All right? Yeah, okay, you got it. So I'm reading, you see we're on the second paragraph, all the way down, it says Padua in big letters, and then Brangenburg, and then Frank, uh, 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 Frankfurt, and so on. So he gets, he's telling us he gets to the city of Frankfurt, where he's going to study medicine. Um and so on. Let me just translate this. I just wanted you to hear the Hebrew for a second, but that's all. Don't worry. Uh, I, I don't want to lose you. Um, so uh, they received us very nicely to learn all of the sciences in their Beit HaMidrash, in their, in their university, right? Uh, 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 even though it was against their laws and their rules, because never had a Jew ever studied in their Beit HaMidrash, right? You correct me if I make a mistake. And also, the, the Duke, uh, this had given us uh, our meals from uh, year to year in order to fulfill our needs. Um, and they, and indeed, these wise people in the university gave us a great covet. Right, they carry a great kavod gadol, and each day they, however, would argue. argue. They would debate us on questions of emunah, on faith questions. What is this? This is a medical school. Why should they be talking about faith? Bidur uh, ba'arichut gadol, and 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 as as was their custom, they would have a kind of disputation with with the Jews sitting there. Where is your, and here he's paraphrasing Deuteronomy 4.6, where is your great wisdom and intelligence? You Jews are supposed to be so damn smart, but you don't know anything about this field, about medicine. He, you, they shamed us. They shamed us. Uh, in other words, you, you, your mantle of greatness was taken away from you. You guys are inferior. You don't know any wisdom. You're sitting there like a bunch of idiots. Uh, uh, if it wasn't for God's gr uh, grace, uh, God's uh, forgiveness, we, we wouldn't be able to lift our eyes. We were uh, struggling with these debates which uh, went on. Uh, and even though we were bikiim, we are our great experts in reading Tanakh, 
and Gomorrah and Midrash. It didn't do us any good in this context. This was a medical school, and we didn't know anything about wisdom and so on. And now turn the page. I just want, I've got only about five more lines I'm going to read to you. Uh, in these debates, we were weak and, and very weak, very weak, uh, deficient. We could, not, we could not answer them. They made us feel quite inferior. Now, this becomes majestic, all right? Just a little bit of Hebrew. Az lavshaoti ruchi akina, kinath adonai tzvaot, venadarti laabir Yaakov imavoel menuchati, lo ele al eres yetsui, velo eten sheina leinai, utnumal afapai ad ki achaber bezrat Hashem chibur kholer. And so, uh, translate. And then, a, my spirit of kina, of... Of, of jealousy, of, uh, of, of fervor, uh, sort of took over a kinat Adonai Tzvaot, a jealousy of, of God. Um, and and I, I, I promised that I would not go to sleep. I would never close my eyes uh, until I wrote a book, Be'ezrat Hashem, with God's help, a great, uh, of all of the wisdoms and all the knowledge to show them because they didn't uh, have all of this wisdom uh, themselves. For us in this world, in the darkness of this bitter galut, this bitter exile, God is a light unto us, and we, are still, we still have wise and intelligent people and scientists among us. In other words, this book was written out of a sense of inferiority. I'm going to prove to the world that we're not so dumb. In other words, this is not a period. It's, it's like the world has overtaken them in terms of the external sciences. But here is a Jew who is going to prove to the world. And that's why I'm writing this book. But notice he wrote it in Hebrew. So who was he writing it to? He wasn't writing it to the Goyim. He was writing it to Jews to make them feel good about their own intellectual worth. Okay. So just to give you a little taste, a remarkable text, a medical textbook written by a Jew. Okay, now I got five minutes. I'm going to finish in five minutes, but I got to introduce us to the third guy. And here we're not going to read the text, but I at least want to introduce him. Um, his name is Isaac Lampronte. He lived from 1679 to 1756. This is the last of the three guys. Okay, the first was Azaria Figo. I know these names are not household names. Uh, the second was Tuvia HaKohen, or Tobias Cohn. And the third one is Isaac Lampronte. He was a rabbi and physician in the city of Ferrara. Ferrara is another beautiful uh, Italian town uh, in north uh, Italy. Um, memorialized until this day, there is a sign where he lived. Isaac Lampronte lived there. Uh, and uh, an inscription uh, on the wall. Lampronte was trained by a group of very famous Jewish doctors in Italy, and he also matriculated at the medical school of Padua, and he completed his rabbinic degrees in Mantua. Uh, he came to uh, the city of Mantua, where he was hired to teach in the Talmud Torah of Sephardic Jews. And there he began to have his students starting to work on a new plan. The work that he published is called the Pachad Yitzchak. The Pachad Yitzchak to rabbinic scholars is a very well-known book. The Pachad Yitzchak is the, is the precursor of the Encyclopedia Talmudit, 
the Encyclopedia of the Talmud. It is the first Encyclopedia of the Talmud. What is the Encyclopedia of the Talmud? It takes all of the sugyot of the Talmud, all of the, the different subject matter of the Talmud, and organizes them by alphabet. So a new organization of knowledge. Is that the concordance? A, a concordance. But then he gives you, under particular titles, a whole series of texts related to the sugya. Um, this, he began it as a journal, uh, and he published it in installments. And then he almost got fired because the community was very upset that he was using his students as research assistants. Uh, nothing has changed that much, right? Uh, and then finally, most of it in, in some 30 volumes was published after his death. Pachad Yitzchak, they were supposed to put a new edition, there are old editions of it and so on. But if you go, for example, to the National Library of the Cypriot you will see among all the, next to the Encyclopedia Talmudit, which is the modern version of this text, you will see the Pachad Yitzchak written by Isaac Lampronte. Now let me say just a couple of words about him and I will end. And I'll, I'll just introduce the text without actually studying it with you. Um, this uh, is a remarkable example of the fusion of rabbinate and doctorate. In other words, he was a rabbi doctor for sure. And what you have here is, an, is the meeting of two cultural worlds or two intellectual worlds. In other words, the Talmud now meets a Western way of organizing knowledge. And the rabbi feels the need to reorganize the Talmud in such a way that it will be more available, more accessible, more understandable within the context of an encyclopedic form. In other words, it will become a major aid to the study of the Talmud. So take away the haphazard or the chaotic form of rabbinic texts and let's reorganize this in a new way. The Pachad Yitzchak is a remarkable example of the fusion of science and Judaism. And, and not only that, if you open up the Pachad Yitzchak, we just have a, a young woman who I help very much, uh, just finished her doctorate at Columbia University, um, on the Pachad Yitzchak, uh, in which she shows, first of all, there are so many uh, uh, texts that deal with medicine. I mean, he was a doctor, so he was very interested in the human body and, and in medicine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they are all listed there. He includes various uh, responsa written by local rabbis in this period of time and so on. But in addition, the idea of, of, of the encyclopedia itself is a modern invention, is a modern form of study. And therefore, what you have here is indeed the remarkable connection between rabbinic study uh, and the modern study of, 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 of academic learning. What is the text that I, I uh, suggested here? It, it's, it's just it's a wonderful example. It's about, uh, believe it or not, um, it's about um, fleas. Don't get itchy on me, uh, but it, w please. So here, here's the question. I'm just going to explain to you what he does. I'm not going to actually teach you. Um, it just take me one more minute. Um, according to the halakha, uh, Shabbat, uh, if a flea starts bothering you in the course of Shabbat, can you kill it or not? Can you go like that? And according to the halakha, you can. Can or can't? Can. can. Why? Because from the perspective of the ancient rabbis, fleas were not living creatures. They were, they were created by moisture, and therefore hitting it like this is not going to do anything. However, in the year uh, 1668, 
Francesca Redi, a very famous scientist in Italy, looked uh, at fleas under the microscope, and he discovered that they are indeed living organisms. Now the question comes up, so what is the, does the halakha have to change to sort of fit into modern science? If they are living organisms, then you can't kill them on Shabbat, uh, and therefore you shouldn't be allowed to go like this, right? So the discussion goes on for pages and pages. And he turns to uh, one of his own teachers, Yehuda Brill, who writes, I only gave you part of it, it goes on even beyond what I gave you. Uh, if you want the Hebrew text, uh, it's right here. Uh, and you see what it looks like or how the encyclopedia is constructed. And Yehuda Brill says, we never change for the knowledge of men. Indeed, if the halakha says, kill it, kill it. It's okay, right? <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then uh, Lampronte responds in a remarkable way, and he says, you know, thank you for your very intelligent answer, but you're totally wrong. Uh, and then he goes on and proceeds to explain that the world is changing, and we have to rethink our own, that, that science was something that emerged within the context of a specific time, and as science changed, we need to rethink uh, some of these principles himself. However, at the end, he sort of backs away. And then he comes back to it in a different sugya, and he says, well, when I can make it conform the halakha to science, I will, but when I can't, I guess I'll accept the halakha. But he's still not sure, and in the end, the end he's, it's a kind of confused position. And for me, it's a wonderful illustration of the cultural world that he lived in. I mean, he was experiencing all of these changes in the natural world around us and trying to figure out how Jewish traditions can somehow keep up with this larger world. Um, so the Pachad Yitzchak, therefore, is for me a remarkable illustration of, number one, the rabbi doctor, number two, the reorganization of knowledge, and number three, the challenge of halachic authority versus uh, scientific authority, which is, by the way, a major subject that goes right into the 21st century, Shabbos elevators, all kinds of other things, which you know, are, are part and, and the rabbis are commenting about them, are thinking about them, are, are consulting with physicians, are doing all kinds of things to make this meaningful and so on. So let me bring this to an end. Uh, and I'm sorry I went over a little bit, but I, I at least got in our three guys. Uh, I don't know if this lecture was better than the other one, but I like talking about these three people because they're all kind of heroes of mine. I reconstructed their lives and their thinking, um, and um, I, I, I feel very close to them. In other words, it seems to me that what you can say about them, uh, you know, in, in the 19th, 20th century, uh, there are a lot of Jews who go into science in the, in, the, in the very modern era. But they don't come out necessarily, some of them do, but, but they don't come out of this kind of rabbinic Jewish identity. What you have here is this remarkable coagination, uh, this, this fusion between uh, being a Jew and, and being involved with being a doctor and how one's professional identity uh, is connected to one's cultural and religious identity as well. Uh, in all three cases, uh, Figo, whether he's a doctor or not, uh, you know, gave sermons in which he referred to nature, or Tuvia Kohen, writing a medical textbook in order to show the world that we are a wise and discerning people, uh, or Lampronte, constructing a whole encyclopedia of the Talmud as opposed to simply reading the Talmud itself. In all three cases, you see that Jews lived in this larger cultural space and that indeed uh, nature and the natural world, the world of medicine and the world of science affected them deeply. Uh, so I hope this little journey into the early modern period was successful and that you appreciated uh, the reconstruction of Jewish life. In my first lecture, I talked about 
myself as an historian, and what I think the historian does, among others, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't assume to, to be godlike here, but uh, it's a kind of tichiata metim. In other words, a kind of reconstructing a life that has been lost, uh, reviving the dead. And as we say, uh, uh, and as we said in memorializing uh, the four soldiers, uh, may their memory be a blessing to us. And that's exactly what we do when we recall who they are. Uh, and we connect with their values and their life uh, as I've tried to do. Thank you. All right, so you, Ratma, you'll tell me when I gotta stop, but uh, go on. Okay, so Padua is the first university to open up for Jews for medicine, which raises a lot of questions. Where did Jews go for doctors before then? Did Jews only treat Jewish patients? Did non-Jews go to Jewish doctors after they became doctors? You know, no, okay, now that question was asked on Shabbos, but you weren't there, right? Nope. Yeah, we weren't. All right, so I gotta answer, but, but the rest of the audience wasn't there either, so it's good that you asked it, it's a very good question. Um, so the answer is, uh, there's a wonderful historian who was a duke for many years named Joseph Schatzmiller, uh, and he wrote a book on Jewish doctors in the Middle Ages, and that book tries to answer that exact question. Um, when I, uh, I used to take uh, 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 my Jewish donors, I raised a lot of money for my institution at Penn. Uh, I took them to Europe and I lectured on Jewish history. And uh, we, one, one of the trips, this was, you know, you'll forgive me, five-star uh, restaurants, Michelin restaurants together with seeing Jewish sites. It was sort of quite a combination. Uh, and, um, you know, so I, was, these are gastronomic Jews as well as, uh, as something else. But I, we were in Montpellier, which is a beautiful uh, medieval uh, university town with a very famous medical school. And I think I mentioned this in passing before. And there are five pillars with the five founding fathers of the university. And believe it or not, there are two Jews who are mentioned. One of them is Jacob Ibn Mahir. In other words, I, I don't remember the other name. But they're well known. Uh, and they supposedly founded the university. But that seems to be a myth. I, in fact, Jews could not study in the medieval university. Remember, medieval universities were basically theological institutions. There's a, depart, there's a school of theology. There's a school of law. That's canon law. And there is medicine. So that was the only parva space they could probably find. But nevertheless, they were denied entrance. Even in the case, as you saw with Tuvia, even Frankfurt de Oder kicked them out. They didn't want them to study there, so they went to Padua. They went south. I mean, this Ashkenazic Jew, there's a picture of him in his, the edition of his book. I mean, he really looks Ashkenazic, uh, you know, hanging out in, uh, in Italy, you know, in the city of Padua. Um, Jews taught each other medicine. There is a long tradition. First of all, we have several important medieval physicians, like Moses Maimonides like Chazdai ibn Shaprut in the 10th century, who made it big within the larger cultural space and were also involved in kind of political positions. I mean, were actually the leaders of their Jewish community. But the rest of them, particularly in certain areas, in Italy, in Provence, uh, in northern Spain, Jews were trained through a kind of apprentice system by other Jewish doctors. Uh, and Schatzmiller shows in his book that in the 14th century, for example, over one-third in these regions of uh, doctors were uh, Jews. And they were serving Christian patients. Now, according to canon law, according to church law, not so cool. You know, a Jewish doctor, 
But nevertheless, everybody knew already even then that Jewish doctors are the best. So you go to, so indeed. And we have actually kings and princes, you know, calling up a Jewish, there are many stories like this, uh, calling up uh, Jews to serve, you know, at the court and so on and so forth. Um, there's a famous, famous story of uh, one of the founders of the Amsterdam Jewish community, uh, Eliyahu Montalto. Eliyahu Montalto was an extraordinary physician of the eye. Uh, and uh, the Queen of France uh, had a big eye disease, so she called, she was call, he was called upon, um, and he, he was given a, a horse and carriage uh, and, given, uh, and told that he didn't have to work on Shabbat before he came. And uh, uh, indeed, uh, he died in France, and his disciples from Amsterdam, he was a, a, a converso background, a background of, of Spanish-Portuguese, um, they brought his body to Amsterdam where it was buried. Uh, but indeed, that's one of many, many stories of the importance of the Jewish doctor. So Jews did serve non-Jewish clients. They also served the Jewish community. Um, and this was before Padua. Um, and then the process begins, you know, after Padua, it's still a very slow process. Other Italian universities opened up. One of the most important universities for training Jewish doctors was uh, outside of Amsterdam, where the Jewish Sephardic Jews of Amsterdam sent their kids this was the city, the University of Leiden. I don't know if you ever heard, Leiden is near Amsterdam. Uh, Leiden is a very famous medical school, and uh, there we have there uh, the uh, uh, degrees, the certificates of, of, of degrees of many Sephardic Jews who studied in Leiden as well. And then later on, other German universities, and of course, by the 19th century, uh, this is pretty common. Um, but nevertheless, there's a long tradition of doing medicine prior to Padua. Uh, and uh, in, indeed, in, in, uh, in, in, you remember Yehuda Messer Leon, I, uh, you were the, I, I, I taught this guy who teaches rhetoric. He was a doctor and he was allowed by the state to give uh, medical degrees to other Jews, and he did. And one of them was Alimano, who was the student, who was the teacher of Pico. Remember, that was another, a previous lecture of mine, but the, but the idea I, you can get. In other words, it was possible, there was this long tradition of Jewish medicine long before the university, and somehow, they were close to the university, but not officially part of it. But Padua really opened the door. And as far as I, I, I believe, I, I've written on this, uh, I, I think it was very transformative in terms of the early modern period. And remember, the doctors that were graduating from Padua were Italian, but they were also Spanish, and they were also German, and they were also Eastern European. And what um, about Austria? What about Vienna? Well, of course, but, but later on, in other words, by the 18th century, uh, or, uh, the University of Vienna becomes you know, a medical school and so on. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a very slow process until these universities open their doors to Jews. So Italy is really the first. Uh, there is, I can't remember the name of the, of the Hebrew writer, but there's a famous uh, poem, uh, the Bocher uh, mi Padova where a student from Eastern Europe comes down and he studies at Padua. So Padua also had Eastern European Jews studying there uh, who, you know, who then went back to serve their own communities. So Padua was an interesting moment within my the Jewish experience. Yes. Um, my original question was what Michael asked you, but thinking about that, the doors were opening because, were the doors opening because Jews were proving themselves to be good students and good good doctors, um, or were they opening because schools needed students and they needed they needed tuition. money, they needed tuition, um, and was it in part the anti-Semitism that they were experiencing that maybe 
gave extra drive to the Jewish students to succeed and to uh, not only prosper, but to succeed in a way that others wanted their influence and to study from them as well. Yeah, I, I, I like that, what you, what you add at the end. Um, so the question is, why did Padua open its doors to Jews? Um, and then and beyond that, the other schools. Yeah, the other schools and so on. Lots of criticism, uh, condemnation from the Pope. No, no, the, the, you know, as a Catholic university, we shouldn't allow Jews in. Um, you just, uh, I think part of the motivation was money. They had to pay a lot, and they had to pay extra taxes, and they had to pay extra tuition, uh, which was supported by other Jews. So, so clearly, uh, you know, Padua was a kind of nominal Catholic university. Um, I don't think they were committed to, you know, Jewish uh, liberation or, or to, you know, helping Jewish students who were bright and so on. I think it was, it was primarily a financial arrangement. Um, and, uh, but th they let him in. And then, and it was very slow, as I said. Uh, many of these doctors were not, were not allowed in. Did they try harder? Sure. Uh, what is interesting, and I just sort of mentioned it, one of the texts that I teach in my course is a text written from this period of time by a group of Jewish doctors. It's a flyer that was sent out to the, all the Jewish communities of Italy and it's something very near my heart. One of the, my jobs at the University of Pennsylvania was, was schnorring, you know, the noble profession of, of raising money. Um, and this is especially a brochure to raise money, believe it or not, for a Jewish school where Jew Jewish students don't have to run off to Padua, where they can stay at home and study Talmud and then learn Latin and read medical textbooks as well. A kind of yeshiva university for, uh, you know, for the, the 17th century. Uh, it's a remarkable text. They obviously did not raise the money um, uh, and the, the, the school never happened, but they present to us a whole curriculum uh, of, of, of Jewish learning where the sciences are integrated with Jewish life. So it's, a kind of, it's exactly a Yeshiva University of, of its time, or Brandeis University was founded in the same way, or um, what's, it, what's it, Jewish University in Los Angeles, American Jewish, what's it called now, American Jewish? Jewish? University. Yeah, okay, all right. So the same idea. But in any case, um, uh, clearly, so th there was, there was an, a, a total awareness that Padua was a challenge culturally and socially and religiously for Jews to enter this space, but of course they did anyway. Uh, you hinted a little bit about uh, Padua, uh, Italy is a relatively peace. Back east, Poland and Bel the area of Belarus is in turmoil. The, the Cossacks are rebelling, the Tatars are moving in from, from Turkey. What happens there? Except uh, you mentioned right, Nevada, right, 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 right. All right, well, well of course, the, the events he's referring to are the Chmelnitsky pogroms of 1648, yeah. uh, a very difficult time for Jews living in Poland, Lithuania. Uh, they had really risen uh, and were, had made it economically and socially, and all of a sudden, this enormous blow. We don't know exactly how many Jews were killed, but there were many killed, there were many that fled. Uh, there was an historian at Brown University named Adam Teller who was writing a whole book now on the results of the Chmelnitsky pogrom. What is interesting is that they, they, they move all over the place. They move southward, they move, uh, uh, they move east. Uh, you know, there had been mobility from west to east, as I talked about mobility early on when I began the lecture. Now they're moving from east back into the west. So one of the results of the Chmelinsky program is, is the reappearance of Jews in the west 
first in Germany and then ultimately in Amsterdam and every place else, Eastern European Jews were making their way uh, eastward. But the results of 1648 are relatively short-lived. In other words, the Jewish community is not over. Uh, and it revives itself, you know? It takes 10, 20 years. But basically, Jewish life continues and the Council of Four Lands is not abolished until 1760-something. Right. So in other words, we still have a very vital Jewish community in this larger area. Many of them move eastward. They move even farther into what be eventually becomes Russia by, by uh, you know, the end of the 18th and 19th century with the partition of Poland and so on. And then we, we create the, the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the, uh, the Pale of Settlement, which is this band where Jews are living in great concentration uh, in this period, sort of, uh, in this area sort of east of, of, of Poland and, and west of what we now know as Russia and so on. Um, but clearly this, this was a blow, and, uh, and uh, of course Italy had its ups and downs and its, its expulsions and so on, but nevertheless Jewish life was revived. Uh, and clearly what we're speaking about in this period are incredible connections between Poland and Italy and between the Ottoman Empire and Italy. These Jews are quite mobile, they're moving. And of course, many, the most interesting community of all from the 16th century on is the community of, of Israel, Eretz Israel, Because there you're getting Ashkenazic Jews, Sephardic Jews, you're getting, it's, it's a real melting pot. Uh, that emerges with the revival of Jewish life in the Ottoman Empire, and particularly in a place like called Sfat, uh, you know, the uh, Safed, um, where the Kabbalah is revived and so on. But many of these, some of these Eastern European Jews even make it as far as Israel and end up the Ashkenazic communities uh, that settle in the land of Israel. So this is a period of mobility, of change, but not of total destruction of the Jewish community of Eastern Europe. Yes. That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, general health methods, of course, were improving, and there were more, and not only Jews, but there were a lot of people studying in medical schools. So clearly, and you know, if you read Tuvia, it's very interesting. He's writing a, a a medical textbook for the masses, but he's he's an elite physician. And he says, you know, don't go to these quacks, don't go to these charlatans, these folk medical people. I'm a university graduate, and therefore, you know, take, so there's already a sense of, you know, a kind of uh, caste system between the good doctors and the ones that don't have the good degrees and so on. Uh, so that's there, and I'm sure that it's there in a larger community. I was thinking when you were asking the question also, um, I told you about my little seminar this past semester. So I had a nice uh, Orthodox Jewish girl, and she wrote, believe it or not, uh, I gave her a plague track that was written in 1630, and she read it in Hebrew about the plague of 1630. And why do I mention that? I mean, and she did an incredible job. I gave her an A. Um, um, and she worked with her father, who was also, a, you know, he could read Hebrew texts. I mean, something about this Orthodox Jewish community. I mean, they, they, their knowledge of Hebrew is, is, you know, is vast if you can sort of take advantage of it. Not all Orthodox Jewish kids know Hebrew that well, but she, she was incredible. Uh, but the reason I mention this is because the plague was a good example of how all medical knowledge is useless. I mean, it just killed people all over the place. 
almost like you know the other plagues you know but plagues were part and parcel of this period as well so the, this this text describes how Jews you know tried to be sanitary clean they observed all of these rules and so on but still thousands of them were killed anyway along with the Christians um, so you know medical practice uh, I, I'm not an expert on the history of medicine per se but it seems to me that uh, there were you know medicine was sort of a combination of hit and miss um, and they were beginning to experience new methods of using uh, medicine, but clearly it was nothing like our, our modern medical practice. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, doctors could help, but uh, they, 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 there were many failures as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, that's from the History Channel? Or no, that's, not, that's good. Uh, History Channel, wherever you got it, that's good. Uh, no, clearly um, uh, Jews were accused in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period of poisoning wells, of using the blood of, uh, of Christians, uh, you know. No, uh, yeah, and but all right. So, are there statistics that Jews uh, survive more than Christians? I mean, being when there's a plague, you know, being clean is not enough. Well, wait a minute, I remember what it was. It was something genetic, wasn't it? Something in the gene uh, that made the Jews. Well, certainly Jews were accused of causing the plague. I mean, this thir the best example of this is 1348. 1348 was the the most massive plague of the Middle Ages. And indeed, Jews were blamed for this plague. So this indeed engendered lots of anti-Semitism, lots of hostility, and so on. And it was part of this image of the Jew as the sorcerer, as the black magician, and so on. I mentioned the Jews being involved in magic when I first began. So there's a reality, and there's also the image that's created around this reality of Jews uh, and magic. Uh, but you know, there's good magic and there's bad magic. There's white magic and there's black magic. Um, and indeed, uh, plagues were a very difficult time for Jews uh, and, and in, in any period of time. Uh, and, they, and you know, when, when you, you need a scapegoat, of course, the Jews are, are, are conspicuous and, and available. Uh, but clearly, um, uh, whether they survive better than the Christians, perhaps because of their sanitary conditions, uh, it's hard to say. What is clear is that even after Chmelnitsky and all of the pogroms and so on, uh, from the 17th, 18th, and particularly the 19th century, Jews reproduced themselves. This is the age of having lots of children. Uh, and the population of the Jews, uh, you know, uh, multiplies at enormous rates. Um, so they are indeed staying alive, and they are reproducing themselves, and they are growing as a community uh, from the hundreds of thousands into the millions by the 18th and 19th century. Um, so uh, obviously their sanitary care had... Something to do with that, perhaps. Yes. Uh, by the way, I'm going to have to leave at 8:25. I want to leave earlier, uh, but so go on. Ask the question. We'll get out of here, both of us. Yeah. My driver's waiting for me. Yeah, go on. You mentioned that on the Sabbath, it was uh, a sin to kill a flea. What about the other days? I mean, killing is killing. What about the other days during the week? Ah. Uh, um. That's a good question. We'll have to go back and check my halachic sources on fleas. Um, I mean, killing is killing. Yeah, killing is killing. Right, right, right. It, it's, it's sort of, um, 
So, so that's a good question. I, I think it's okay to kill fleas on uh, on on the on Yemei Chol. It's okay for me. I'll kill flea any day. You know what I'll do? I'll, I'll pass way. the buck. I say, ask your rabbi. You know, he, he'll tell you. That, you know, ask him whether it's permissible to kill a flea. Uh, but you know, according to Lampronte, even on Shabbat, I mean, if it's a living creature, it, see, uh, if fleas are only considered to be something, you know, some kind of dirt there or some moisture or something. It doesn't matter if you hit it or not, you know, whether well, or scratch it. I would say it's okay to kill a flea on any day. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. You can kill a cow every day. You, can, you can't slaughter animals. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. It's the kind of thing, you, certain things you can't do, you know, the, 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 the categories of work on Shabbat. Yeah, go on. This, this will be the last question. All right, okay, go on. comment on the flea. Remember that there are fleas that transmit very serious diseases. So you have to be very aware of that. And a way of protecting you, I guess, you're better off getting rid of the, of the flea. Because there are a, a number of, of diseases that are transmitted by the flea. That's really very interesting. Lampronti doesn't mention that. He should probably yeah, can you argue why you should be uh, killed. But he doesn't mention yeah. that. One, Can you one, repeat that? One comment on the quick uh, so he was talking about the fact that there's a mikvah in Montpellier, so there was a Jewish community there. No, absolutely. And they hung out around there. But what I'm saying is that officially they were not recognized as students until the 16th century. So the, the, the quick question, please. The, you mentioned rabbi, physicians, that magic, uh, occult science, Kabbalah was part of it. When they opened Padua, they came to Padua, did they bring any of that into the Padua is it reflected in any of the books, the textbooks that the Jewish doctors wrote? Uh, I'm going to use this as a, as a segue to one of the lectures I'm going to give is on the Venetian ghetto. I'm going to speak about a student of Padua named Joseph Hamitz, who was a student of Leonardo Modena. He went to the university, and then he decided there was something missing in his scientific education. So he started studying Kabbalah. And Leon Modena, who was an anti-Kabbalist, said, don't do that. And they had an argument. They went back and forth and so on. He not only became a Kabbalist, he became a follower of Shabbat Tzvi. Uh, and he went off the deep end. I mean, you know, completely. So the, that, that, this is the world I haven't painted. Kabbalah in Italy also has a history, which I, I, I talked about a little bit in a, pre, a previous lecture. Um, it is part of the culture. But clearly, in this case, uh, and Modena himself writes a work called Arino Hain, the Roaring Lion, in which he says, don't study Kabbalah, go to the medical school, become a rationalist. So the debate between reason and mysticism is already prevalent in this period of time. And Modena it begins this assault on the Kabbalah on the part of a Jewish thinker. Um, there's a wonderful book on, on this book, on, on this anti-Kabbalistic text, written by Yaakov Dweck at Princeton University, who happens to be one of my doctoral students and wrote a doctorate for me. So uh, you could check it out. It was published by Princeton University Press if you want to read about this world of Kabbalah versus anti-Kabbalah. But I think I gave you enough time. I can't give my...